people said, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us in singing to God and about his joy, uh, because joy is what we're going to be talking about for a while. Uh, We just finished, much to the relief of many, a short series in the Old Testament book of Malachi. Uh, I say relief of many because uh, that was a hard-hitting and um, penetrating book of Scripture. Um, I probably had more people than ever before say to me, yeah, boy, you picked that one for me, didn't you? (laughs) Well, (laughs) that's the sign of of, uh, hitting the target. When God writes a book for all of us and we all say, wow, that was aimed right at me, right? And that was good and that was healthy. Today, we're going to start a new series in which we shift gears a little bit Uh, and talk about really the same thing from a different angle, and that is what it means to follow God with a whole heart. We're looking at the New Testament book of Philippians. And have you ever noticed that in life as people, as human beings, it's just human nature, we do what we love. We do what we love. Um, At the end of the day, it's just kind of a, a universal truth. People do what we really, really want to do, and we find it difficult to do what we really don't want to do. Uh, So many examples of this. I I majored in history as an undergraduate in college, and that means you read a lot. And um, back in the day where we did have computers, I'm not that old, but uh, the internet uh, wasn't quite what it is today, and um, Google meant that you were looking at something funny. I mean, it was a different era back then, and so research was actually done in a library. I know it's kind of crazy, but I can remember so many hours of research in the libraries on campus where I was just absolutely grinding. It was like crawling over broken glass to try to make my brain concentrate on all these books that I was supposed to read for this assignment that some stodgy history professor had given me, and I just had to do it, and there was like no joy in it at all. I was tempted to say back then, like, I don't love research. I don't love looking stuff up. I don't love going to the library. And yet, here I am many years later, and I have this kind of long-term dream that I want to take my uh, wife to Europe for our 25th anniversary. I don't know if it'll happen, but it's a nice dream, right? So I put that out there. And so to start thinking about that possibility, I'm doing research. Now, fortunately, I'm able to do it like on my computer now or sometimes even my phone, but it's the same thing, right? I'm looking up things about places that we might want to go visit and, and what you can do there and what you see there. And everybody's talking about if you go here, you've got to see, you know, this building where certain things happen. Well, what were those things? So suddenly I'm digging into like, what's the story behind that place and what's the history? And then the more I learn about it, the more like excited we get about the idea that, hey, we may end up there someday. And, and oh, look at this. And guess what? I love research. Well, it kind of depends, right? (laughs) It depends on what you're researching. We do what we love, and we really generally just don't do or only do for a little while or half-heartedly what we don't love. That's part of human nature, and that's actually human nature for a reason. God designed us that way specifically. And I I lead into the sermon this morning with that kind of illustration because it's essential, that that point that we do what we love is an essential part of the message of the New Testament book of Philippians that we're going to be looking at uh, for the next uh, several Sundays together. We'll take a little break around um, uh, Palm Sunday and Easter, but this series will carry us through um, a good part of the spring together. Philippians is a book about joy. It's 
one of the, the key sort of essential books in the New Testament, and it's all about the experience of joy that God's people have in seeing the magnificence of Christ and how that changes your life and my life. Now, what we're going to do this morning is, as is often the case at the beginning of a new series, I want to make just a couple comments at the beginning, kind of about the book of Philippians in general. Um, we're not going to get real in-depth at first. It'll just be a couple of overview points that will just kind of help frame the study, so to speak. If you keep these things in mind, it'll help the rest of the book make sense. And then we're going to spend the majority of the time looking at the very first part of the New Testament book of Philippians. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn them to Philippians chapter 1. And while you're doing that, let me just say a couple of things about this book. Um, first of all, a little bit of its context, because the, the book of Philippians, like many in the New Testament, is a letter, and it was written from a person, the Apostle Paul, to a group of people, a church, congregation, that resided in the first century town of Philippi, hence it's Paul's letter to the Philippians, those who lived in Philippi. And that means there was a relationship there, and there was an occasion and a context that generated that letter. And so knowing a little bit of what was going on there will help explain a lot of what we encounter when we read this book. Um, Philippi is in the modern-day um, nation of Greece, northern Greece. You can still go to the ancient city of Philippi today and see some of the ancient ruins. It's something I hope to do someday. That map up there just gives you a little context as to where it is. Uh, the Apostle Paul had started a church in Philippi, just a little bit of background here, when he was traveling with uh, his buddies Silas and Timothy. These are names you're familiar with if you've read particularly the New Testament book of Acts. So these guys ran around into lots of these cities where there's these red dots and they preached the gospel and people became Christians and they started churches. This is how Christianity began to spread in the early days of the first century. And one of those cities was the city of Philippi. They stayed there for a little while. Uh, the scene is recorded in Acts chapter 16, if you want to go back and read it. Uh, the first convert in Philippi was a lady, a merchant trader. Uh, Paul and Silas were also arrested there. That whole story is recorded in Acts 16. They were beaten by the authorities for preaching the gospel. They were thrown in jail overnight. Uh, they were miraculously released overnight. And this whole series of events resulted in the jailer and his whole family becoming Christians. And so there's all these groups of people. They come together. They start a church. And the Apostle Paul and, and his buddies spend time with them helping build the church. And then eventually they leave. Well, fast forward now 10 to 12 years later. By now, the church in Philippi was an established and growing church, but the Apostle Paul was no longer there. He is under arrest, uh, probably in Rome at this point, maybe, as I say, 10 or 12 years after he had first started this church in Philippi. Rome is off the top left to that map, of course, but it just gives you an idea of some of the distances involved. But the people in Philippi who knew him well had heard about his arrest. They were naturally worried about him, and so they sent him some money to help support his um, physical needs while he was under house arrest in Rome. And they delivered that money by the hand of a guy who was a member of their church. We will see his name mentioned a couple of times throughout this letter. Epaphroditus, great Greek name. One of all these awesome Greek names in the New Testament. He was a guy, he was a member of that church, and he knew Paul. So he takes their money, he delivers it to Paul, and then the Apostle Paul writes a letter back to the church, which gets delivered by the hand of Epaphroditus when he goes back. And that letter is the book of Philippians. So that's the letter we're reading, yet Philippians is much more than an extended thank you note. Although it is a thank you note, actually from the Apostle Paul to this church for supporting him financially in his need and for caring about him enough to send somebody on the journey. 
And yet, ever the teacher, the Apostle Paul encourages them and instructs them to grow into even, even greater effectiveness for Jesus. And so we learn a lot. There's a reason this book is in the Bible. We learn a lot about being the kind of church God wants us to be, both from the instructions he gave them and by example from the relationship that he had with them. And we're going to see that second one most clearly this morning. Um, Real quick, just high level, what is the message of the book? What is the point of the book? You can really summarize the message, I think, in a single sentence. This is just me. But if you kind of get this, you get where the book of Philippians is going. The whole message is really this. Disciples of Jesus band together in difficult times with a passion for, or you could substitute joy in, it works either way, a passion for or a joy in the supremacy of Christ in order to make Jesus known. That's what God wants us to see as we read through this book. And if you do take notes, many of you do, I'd encourage you to write this down and just constantly refer back to it because it explains why the things that are said in the book are there and it helps us understand what the point of it all is. Um, Disciples of Jesus band together in the face of difficulty with a passion for the supremacy of Christ to make Jesus known. That's the kind of church God wants this church to be. That's what he's doing in our midst. Um, We get there, you don't have to necessarily write all of these down. This is just, again, last comment on kind of the high level, what's going on with the book of Philippians. You get there because there's these major themes that constantly recur throughout the book. There's five of them. They come up over and over and over again, and they're always interlinked and interplaying with one another. One is this theme of opposition and suffering that Christian people go through in the midst of a world that in general does not see Jesus Christ as Lord. Uh, and sometimes actively opposes the gospel. Secondly, this theme of community, that is relationships. Relationships are huge in this book. Of all the books in the Bible in the New Testament, this is one of the most personal. There's so much personal relationship that gets reflected in these pages between Paul and the members of this church and then their relationships with one another. Thirdly, the exaltation of Christ. The supremacy of Jesus as God made man and the ruler and savior of the universe is a major theme. Fourthly, and maybe the most prominent theme of the entire book is this theme of joy. Unshakable, unmovable joy. Joy no matter what. The book of Philippians makes some huge promises, some like over-the-top sounding promises that you and I as Christians can experience deep satisfaction that doesn't change, deep joy that doesn't change no matter how bad your life is. Well, that sounds really good, but to actually experience that, especially when we're in pain and when things are going hard, is that possible? That's what Philippians is going to talk about. Joy in the supremacy of Christ, and the last but not least, that's spreading the gospel is our mission, helping other people see Christ as more glorious, come to faith in him and grow in their faith in him. That's what it's all about. So all five of these themes, you'll constantly see them, but it really boils down to that single sentence up there. Disciples of Jesus band together in the face of difficulty with a passion for the supremacy of Christ to make Jesus known. Last thing to say before we kind of dive into the, the the, the text of the book. We'll pick up the rest of how Philippians works as we go through it. It's pretty straightforward. It's a letter. It's not hard to interpret or understand what's going on, and we'll see that as we go through, but, but just before we dive in, let me kind of give it maybe a little bit more of a personalized and, and application-oriented comment. What, why study the book of Philippians now? Um, why are we looking at this as a church, and what 
do I hope to see come out of it? There's probably a lot of reasons to study this book and a lot of things to come out of it, but, but I want to answer that question just from the perspective of, of being a pastor, being a pastor in this church, with two, I think, hopes and goals that I think God has for us, and I think they're necessary and helpful for us, for Harvest Community Church at this point in time. First, Studying the book of Philippians gets our eyes up off of the daily pains and daily, sometimes just the daily grind of life onto real, lasting joy. And we are in desperate need of that. We live in a culture and a society that is pretty good at creating superficial entertainment and pleasure, maybe better than any other country, perhaps in the history of the world. We have access to more fun and more toys than almost anybody at any time. And because of that, it can become very easy to try to find our joy and happy relationships and good times and fun stuff. And when that blows apart, especially when we're in pain, it becomes real easy to become jaded and assume that, that there is no such thing as real joy in life. Because look at all I have and I'm still not happy. So many of us in particular right now, so many of the members of this church are really burdened right now. There's a lot of pain represented in this room. It's just difficult things. Family and relational troubles. Employment and financial issues. Health problems. Saying goodbye to loved ones. The list goes on and on and on. There is some deep, deep pain that our pastors and our elders become aware of. And every week we gather together and we pray for we reach out as a church and we say, how can we help? And, and, and so many of us are doing that and walking with one another through pain. I love that, but it's real. It's real. And this book will lift your mind and your heart so that unshakable joy washes over your spirit like cold water in a desert if you let it. If you let it. Like I mentioned, there's... There's some huge promises, some over-the-top sounding promises in this book. And if it wasn't God himself making those promises, I'd be strongly tempted to say that's just not realistic. But this is God talking. And he says, this is me you're talking to. And it is realistic. All of us need to experience real joy, especially those of us who are burdened, jaded, or burnt out. Secondly, the book of Philippians adds vibrant color and beautiful texture to Jesus' command to make disciples. Here's what I mean by that. Many of us as Christians are very familiar with what we call the Great Commission recorded at the end of uh, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, Jesus' kind of last parting words to his disciples in Matthew's Gospel. Go, now that you're my disciples, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you and know that I'm with you to the end of the age. That's his commission. Go be disciples who make disciples. That's our job. That's our task as individual Christians. It's our job and our task as a church. Okay, many of us know that. Many of us agree with it. But let's be honest, and I'll put myself in this category at times. Many of us find it about as inspiring as the exhortation to, you know, you really ought to save for retirement right? It's something we sometimes hear. It's something that when people show us all the little like compound interest charts and how you ought to begin saving when you're young, blah, 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 we all go, yeah, it's right. I know it. I believe it. I think that's right. If I start putting money aside for retirement when I'm young, I'll probably be happier when I'm older. Like I, nobody really necessarily disagrees with that, but 
survey after survey says that many Americans just aren't saving for retirement, even those that have steady jobs. It's just so easy to say, I've got so many opportunities and pressing needs right now. That retirement thing, maybe it seems far off. Yeah, I agree with it, but it's just out there, and I've got real life I need to deal with right now. Maybe someday I hope we'll get to it. Let's be honest. Jesus' command to make disciples sometimes sounds like that. Yes, it's good. Yes, it's right. Yes, it's what Jesus wants me to do. But I've got so many issues and needs and demands right now on my life that just sounds like one other thing to add to an already over-busy, over-packed schedule of work things and school things and family commitments and job requirements and so forth. But for the Bible-centered Christian, everything in life is an opportunity to make Jesus known. And so the call to make disciples isn't just kind of a cold task to do. It's living our lives at school, at work, in our families, through our pains, through our joys, with joy in the supremacy of Christ. Everything we do and experience is an opportunity to make Jesus known, largely through how we see and love and find joy in him. And so making disciples is part of the reality of life. It's the best stuff in life. I think this book helps us see that. So I hope that it gives great hope and joy for those of us, especially in burdened, who are experiencing burdens, and I hope it adds a real, for lack of a better term, color and texture, a compelling desire to be involved in the process of making disciples that makes it more real and maybe a little bit less distant or mechanical. With that in mind, that's enough on the, the overview of the book. Let's look at this first Uh, section together, Philippians chapter 1. I want to read the passage that we're going to look at today. We're going to be in verses 3 through 11 this morning. And this passage neatly divides into two, verses 3 through 8 and then 9 through 11. Let me read that first section first, verses 3 through 8 of Philippians chapter 1. This is the Apostle Paul's very personal reflection on his relationship with the people in this church. God's Word says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's stop right there. There's a lot in this passage about the nature of relationships, of Christian community. And for the sake of time, uh, I want to really land on the second part. This first part describes sort of the nature of Christian community. And the second part that we'll see in verses 9 through 11 really talks about the engine that drives Christian community. That's where we want to land this morning. So what I want to do with these first few verses is just point out three things in this passage about the nature of what Christian community looks like, relationships that Christians are to have with one another when those relationships are shaped by the gospel that we see in the example of the relationship the Apostle Paul had with these Christians. Three points to notice in these uh, six or so verses. First of all, they are relationships with a purpose. Uh, Relationships, Christian relationships are relationships with a purpose. They are purposeful. Uh, Specifically, the purpose is they are built around the gospel. Or to be a little bit more specific, they're built around 
the task of making disciples. They're built around helping one another get to know the glories of Christ better. That's kind of the driving force behind the relationships. You see this, for example, in verse 5, where he says, "Um, I'm so excited about you. I have so much joy and thankfulness for you. Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It all started, the relationship the Apostle Paul had with these people started when they um, cheered the miraculous release of Paul and Silas from that Philippian prison over a decade earlier from the unjust beating and the incarceration that they had received for preaching the gospel. And, and it continued when they welcomed in the Philippian jailer and his family to become members of that church and to share in the joys of Christ together. And they saw the gospel spreading. And all of this was happening together. And he says, since then I left, but you've continued to stay in touch with me. You've continued to support and encourage me as I have traveled around spreading the gospel to more places, planting more churches, and have in turn continued to teach you, perhaps in person, definitely through letters and correspondence. It was a mutual relationship driven by making Jesus known. That was the heart of their connection together. He and they were in it together, so to speak, and this was the basis of their relationship. He says again in verse 7, it's, it's, it's right for me to feel this way toward you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying the reason I'm so excited about you, what cements our relationship, is that you and I have experienced the same grace in Christ. And you continue to show that you've experienced it even now as you support me financially in my imprisonment, but you have been doing that even in earlier years as you make Jesus known in your city just as I'm making Jesus known elsewhere. That partnership in the gospel was the bridge that drew them all together and formed the basis of a friendship. What's being described here is relationships for a reason. Friendship with a purpose. The relationship is more than just the reason, and we'll see that in a moment. It doesn't mean that every conversation they had was like deep and serious or even necessarily theological. There was often times where they would just get together and eat and catch up and have fun and enjoy each other's company. Again, we'll see that here in just a moment. But before we move on to the the joyful, happy, let's just socialize and connect with each other as friends, we need to see that that was built around this core of the experience of the gospel, and the desire to see Jesus be made known in the world. The relationship is shaped by and built around the reason, the way a peach grows around its seed or its pit. It comes from it, it's defined by it, and it grows around it. The gospel is the reason for these relationships. Now, having said that, we also see that they were not only purposeful relationships, they were deeply affectionate relationships. Deeply affectionate and very personal relationships that these people had with one another and together as a group they had with the Apostle Paul. You see that language all over what we read. Um, Verse three, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. There's a lot of emotion in that statement. Every time the Apostle Paul thought of the church in Philippi, he's like, oh God, thank you so much for them. That wasn't just a cold, calculated theological statement. That was a statement of personal experience, of emotion that was driven by years of friendship. He says there is joy, verse 4. I make my prayer for you. Every time I pray for you, it's with joy. He was excited. It wasn't like, I got my prayer list today, and oh, look at that. The church in Philippi is up on it. Okay, what's up with them? God, let me pray for them. Good, check it off my prayer list. That's done. 
Like there's no heart in it. He was excited to pray for them. He wanted to pray for them because of his joy. It goes on, verse 7, uses this tender language. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. He says, you guys, you guys are precious to me. You're special to me. And I yearn for you, verse 8, he says. How I yearn for you with all affection. I want to be with you. He's far away. He's in Rome. He's like, I would love to go back and spend time with you. Like, that would be a vacation for me. To get to go back to your town and see you guys again, that would be so exciting. You can just hear all of the emotion in this. You have friends like that? Maybe they're people that are close to you now, or maybe they're people that... Uh, circumstances of life have moved you far away from each other, but like any opportunity you get to spend time together, you're just like, I'll move mountains to go be with those people. By the grace of God, I have a few friendships in my life like that. Uh, Some of them are very far away. In fact, my wife and I have one uh, pair of friends who are missionaries in Central Europe, in Slovenia of all places. If you don't know where Slovenia is, don't worry, neither did I until they went there. Uh, It's right across from Italy, just north of Greece. They've been there for years, but occasionally they come back and visit. Uh, One time, a couple of years ago, they were back and they were um, visiting some supporters and so forth, and they had a meeting across town. It was way out, almost at Sandy. It was way out in just kind of the boondocks. It took us like almost an hour to get there, and uh, we decided to go, and when we got there, of course, there was lots of other people there, and so we got to see them a little bit, but you know, they had to mix with a lot of other people too, and we were there for a couple hours and came back. The whole thing took the better part of a day. It was like a Saturday, and it took a big chunk out of our day just to kind of get to spend a little bit of interrupted time with them. But both my wife, Amy, and I were like, that's worth it to us. And the funny thing was, like they see us and they come up and they're like, thank you guys for coming all the way over here. You just came from Slovenia. (laughs) I came from like Beaverton, okay? I mean, (laughs) on its face, that's just a ridiculous comment. But But the point was, it's like, but you know, it wouldn't matter if I had the opportunity to go all the way to Slovenia just to see you. That would actually be worth it to me just to be able to spend some time with you. And by God's grace, for some reason, they feel the same way about us. Those people that just so encourage you, it's like, I will will rearrange any schedule. I'll spend money. I'll do whatever I can realistically to get to be with these people. That's how the Apostle Paul felt about the church in Philippi. These were deeply affectionate relationships. But there's one more thing to notice. The kind of community that is so often pictured in the Bible between Christians is not only purposeful, and it's not only affectionate, but it's also supernatural. It's also supernatural. There's an element to these relationships that can't be explained purely by the people who make the relationship up. And you see the Apostle Paul allude to that explicitly in verse 8, the very last verse we read. I started reading it for a moment ago. Let me finish it now. God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection. What's it say? Out loud, loud and strong. Of Christ Jesus. Well, that's an interesting phrase. I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. You know what the Apostle Paul is saying there? I don't yearn for you with all the affection of Paul. I don't love you just because I love you and you're great and you're wonderful. 
He says, I love you. I experience joy at the memory of you and a desire to be with you and I have all of this affection toward you, but it's not at the end of the day. My affection, what I am experiencing is the love that Jesus has for you and I am experiencing part of it too. There's a third person in this relationship. There's the Apostle Paul, there's the people in the church, and then there's Jesus Christ. Uh, this past year, we gave our uh, community life group leaders a book called The Compelling Community, um, authored by the name of Mark Dever. Great book. I'd strongly encourage anybody who considers this their church home to pick it up and read it. The Compelling Community. The basic gist of the book, the argument of the book, is, is the one that's being made here. In churches, gospel community is defined when the love of God for people is experienced by other people and we come together around the gospel to do life together. In other words, the main thing that defines a relationship is not that we're naturally attracted to one another because we like the same things, you know? It's like when we actually let cowboy fans come onto our staff. <laughs> and it's okay, it's okay, you know? We don't all like that. And we let Eagle fans come to our church. Don't get clapping too loud over there. I mean, come on now. You'll have a chance to clap later if they win, okay? The point is, it's not like we just, we all like the same things or we're in the same season of life. We're all raising toddlers and so we're together or we're all kind of empty nesting so we have these common experiences. And, and of course, when that happens, that's wonderful and that's good, but that's not what really defines our relationship. When God is really glorified, is when you see a church full of people who have very little in common and yet they're deeply affectionate toward one another. Why? Because they're surrounding, their relationship surrounds the gospel and because it's God's love that we are experiencing. That's God's heart for his church. It's our heart for this church. I encourage you to pick up that book, The Compelling Community is the title. But these gospel-shaped relationships are purposeful, they are affectionate, and there's an element by which they're supernatural. God's love for one another gets poured out into our own hearts. And that really leads the Apostle Paul to kind of some, some specific applications. And this is where we want to land because he prays for them uh, in verses 9 through 11. He tells them what his prayer is. And there's a lot of significant uh, lessons to learn here. Verses 9 through 11. He says, This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. It's quite a prayer. There's a lot of Bible-ish sounding phrases in that, you know? I don't know about you, but when I read verses like that, it's easy for me to kind of, yep, but, up, but you move from one phrase to the next, and you end it, and you go, that all sounds really good. But I had to stop myself this week as I was preparing for this morning and say, that all sounds really good. Sounds like the kind of stuff you should read in the Bible. But what did I just read? What did he just say? And the more I started thinking about it, the more I, said, I thought, there's some really odd and interesting things in this prayer. Like, I'm looking at this going, can I use this as a model to pray for my own church? Hey, that's a great idea. So how would I put this into practice myself? I don't know. What did he just say? And so I start, like, picking it apart. And so here's what I notice. First of all, in verse 9, he says he, he prays that, that their love um, that they've already shown him would continue to grow more and more. So far, so good. That seems pretty pretty clear what he's praying for there. He says, you guys are taking care of me because you love God, and I just pray that that kind of love would just grow. Okay, fine. But then it gets a little bit weird because he then says 
in verse 9, the um, surprising ingredients of their increasing love is that their knowledge would increase. Okay? And then, then that would result in what he calls their discernment increasing, all of which somehow, he says, is going to lead you to living a life that glorifies God, and when you stand before God on judgment day, you know, God will be proud of that. I found myself stepping back just kind of going like, whoa, okay, that was like three verses of theological whiplash. What, what, are, you, what are you saying here? It surprised me at first that right after he prays that their love would increase, he says there's a couple of key ingredients, learning and discerning. Learning and discernment. I pray that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Okay, knowledge of what? And what is discernment? And what does any of that have to do with love? Yet for the Apostle Paul, they were sort of seamlessly connected. I found myself kind of having to pick this apart one word at a time to try to understand what was going on. And the harder I tried, the more it started to make sense. He's praying that the members of the Philippian church would experience increasing love, yes, but an informed love, if I could put it that way. And it's a love that leads to discernment, which basically means the ability to differentiate, differentiate between what is good and what is bad. Or sometimes the ability to differentiate between what is good and what is better and between what is better and what is best. That, that's what discernment means. It's just the ability to understand the differences. Like you see the difference. Yeah, this thing is fine, but this thing is better and that's really clear to you. To the extent that you see that clearly and accurately, you are a person of discernment according to the way the Bible uses the language. So he's praying that they would have more discernment that they would be able to see the difference between good and better and between better and best and he says that somehow will help you love more deeply the fog started to clear a little bit for me and because you love more you will live a holy life that will put god's glory on display what he's ultimately getting at here of course is that the end goal of a christian is to live a life that puts god's glory on display a life that when we stand before him to give an account, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, welcome home. That's my ultimate goal as a Christian. Seems pretty far off for some of us, but that's the ultimate goal. Now, to get there, he pulls this back in this prayer, and he starts getting really practical and really personal. How do I get that kind of a life? And the answer is, by loving God above all else. Let's turn that around. If I love God above all else, I will live a God-glorifying and God-honoring life. It will just naturally flow from that. Why? Because at the core of how God designed us, we are responders by nature. That's just who we are as human beings. We are responders. God designed us, our minds, and certainly our hearts and our affections to respond to what is around us. Our hearts learn to love generally what those around us love. Our thinking and our values tend to get shaped by the values of people around us that we are exposed to. Our lifestyles tend to imitate and mimic the lifestyles of people that we are in close proximity to or that we are watching all the time. This is how cultures work. This is why some people grow up thinking one way in one part of the world and another way in another part of the world because we learn how to think in response to what's going on around us. But it's not just as we're children growing up. The same thing is true even for adults. 
And that's why the music we listen to, the things that we look at and watch and read, all these things tend to influence our behavior. It's because that's how God designed us. We are responders. And it's not really that hard to understand why either. Why would God make us as responders? Because that's our purpose in life. We were made to be in his presence. And he is the greatest and most exciting and beautiful thing there is anywhere. And so he created us as human beings to be in his presence and see and be drawn to his beauty and reflect that back to him in worship and praise. That's our purpose. And so he designed us to fulfill that purpose. He designed us as responders. We're supposed to respond to him and his beauty. Now here's where the problem comes in, of course. That was all before there was sin in the world. That's how it's like, supposed to work. That's how it's going to work again in heaven. But in the meantime, sin enters the picture and messes everything up. And one of the many ways sin messes everything up is it refocuses the heart's the human heart off of the beauty of God. We no longer see him clearly, but we now tend to value lesser things as ultimate. We see lesser joys and think that they're the greatest joys. We see lesser beauties and value them as ultimate beauties. And we seek our deepest satisfaction in things that ultimately cannot satisfy. Some of them even good things. Family. I get married and I have kids and I've got a table full of grandkids someday around the holidays. It just doesn't get any better than that. Marriage, career, achieving my goals, finding a passion and meeting it, earning money, achieving status, the list goes on. It's a familiar list. We, we know this stuff. But at the end of the day, we're often pursuing these things not out of simple necessity that somebody's forcing us to. We pursue them because we really believe if we get just a little bit more of that, then we will be happy. We're valuing lesser things as ultimate things. Many of these things themselves are good things, but they make lousy gods. So, hence the Apostle Paul prays for the need for discernment. The more the pieces started fitting together in my head, the more it kind of made sense what his prayer is. And I, I can see why it's in the Bible, like why this is a good prayer to pray. He says, I want to pray that your love would increase, so I'm going to pray that your knowledge increases, that you will learn more of how beautiful and glorious God really is. Because the more of that you see, the more of that you learn, it will hopefully lead you to discernment, the ability to separate good from better and better from best that you will be able to see God as far better than anything else in your life, even your wonderful family, your great job, or the thing you love to do on the weekend. Like, all that stuff's good, and that's fine, but when you actually see, when the heart sees God is even better than that, the heart will be naturally drawn toward him, your love will increase, you will live more for him. I think verses 9 through 11 are the Apostle Paul's way of saying, I want to pray for you guys as a church that you will live a more holy, God-glorifying life, but I'm not going to do it by giving you a list of stuff you should go check off. Read your Bible more. Attend church more. Serve more and volunteer more. Give more money to the church. He's like, I'm not going to give you those things as a list to check off because that won't increase your love. Instead, I'm going to pray that you would see God more clearly. Because if you do, you will love him more passionately and then you will do all, everything that would have been on my list and you will do it with delight. Because when you see God clearly, you live for him fully. But it's also true that the extent to which I am not loving God completely or perfectly is the extent to which I do not see him clearly. 
Knowledge and discernment is the key to love. Seeing God clearly for who he is, the most beautiful, incredible, attractive, glorious thing that there is. Your heart was made for that, friends. My heart was made for that. But how hard it is to see that day in, day out when there's so many distractions and so many pressures. But that's Paul's prayer for them. They had distractions and pressures do. They looked a fair bit different in the first century. But they had distractions, they had pressures, and he's praying for them that their distractions and pressures would not cloud their view of God, but that they would see God for who he is. Because when you see God for who he is, you love him more and you live more fully for him. This book is going to continue on unpacking some of how beautiful and glorious God is. But I want to I land, we'll stop there for this morning and pick it up in verse uh, 12 next Sunday. But I want to I land us with some specific thoughts about how we can be doing this, kind of putting this lesson into practice as a church right now, actually, just in the coming weeks that we have together. Because right around the corner is the season of Lent. How do I get to know God better, love him more, so that I see him more clearly, love him more, and live more fully for him? Um, many of you know that the season of Lent is 40 days that lead up to Easter, Uh, not including the Sundays. This year, that starts in uh, a week and a half, not this coming Wednesday, but the following Wednesday. And the reason that that's kind of historically been something Christians do is the very thing we've been talking about. Life is pressured, life is busy, and we need to make space in order to see God's beauty. And friends, there is nowhere to see God's beauty more clearly than in the events that we celebrate on the Easter weekend the incarnation of God, the suffering and death of Jesus Christ in our place, and his resurrection on Easter Sunday morning. That is the most beautiful thing you can ever hear and see. But you know what? It's another Easter. And it's so easy for Easter to get full and just kind of we do it and we go to church and we have our family stuff and the egg hunts for the kids. And I mean, all that stuff is great, but boom, we just kind of blow right by it and we're off into the next thing. We don't see that as the most incredible, jaw-dropping, heart-stopping thing in history. We blow by it as another thing on the weekly checklist. So Lent is a way to kind of help us slow down and really get ready for Easter so that we don't blow by it. And by the way, it's going to be even easier to blow by this year because due to quirks in the calendars, um, Easter occurs right at the end of spring break. If you haven't checked your calendar yet, be forewarned. <laughs> uh, Holy Week, as we often call it, the week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday is spring break. It's the time when the kids are out of school and a lot of us are off doing stuff and having fun. And, and that's great. That's fine. My family's going to be gone for part of the spring break week and, and we'll be enjoying our time. But it, it, makes, it makes me feel a little bit more urgent about not just kind of skipping over Easter. So that's why we've made a big deal about Lent here at Harvest the last couple of years. Uh, Every year we do it a little bit differently. We don't want to just kind of get into rote routines, but we try to do things to encourage every member of our congregation to intentionally make space so that we can learn about God, see him as more beautiful, and let Easter impact us more deeply the way he means to. Uh, This year we're going to do it a little bit differently than in past years. Um, There will not be an Ash Wednesday service this year as there has been just the last couple of years. That was a new thing for us a couple years ago. Um, May do it again, but we won't do that this year. What we are doing, though, is we're providing several resources to aid you in planning how you want to spend time during the 40 days of Lent to make space for God. And let me just highlight a couple of things here real quick. This, this all went out in our electronic newsletter on Friday. So if you get that by email, um, double check your spam filters and don't throw it away. Uh, there's a lot of good information in there along with some links to things. 
Uh, by the way, if you don't get our electronic newsletter and you want to, uh, fill out one of the connection cards in front of you. You can just pull that out right now. Give us your name and email address. Drop it off at the Welcome Center as soon as the service is over. We'll put you on a list. It comes out once a month. Here's some of the things we put in there. First of all, uh, uh, several resources to help you make space. Uh, let me highlight two of them. A couple of devotionals. Um, if you're not familiar with that term, a devotional is just something that somebody has written that includes Bible study. And so you read the devotional and you read the Bible. It just kind of guides you into a, pa- a plan of Bible reading to think about a specific theme. And we have two that we're making available. There's a lot of them out there, but we're suggesting two if you don't know where to start. One of them is much lighter. One of them is much more involved. Uh, the lighter one was written by Noel Piper and published by Desiring God Ministries. Uh, and you do it just on the Sundays. It's a once-a-week devotional on the Sundays uh, during the Lent season. And we've got a link to that in our newsletter, or you can uh, sign up for a hard copy if you'd like to. We will print you a hard copy if you want us to do that for you. There's a sign-up sheet out at the Welcome Center this morning. Uh, the more involved one is the devotional many of us went through last year, the Bible story in 40 days. That's a daily devotional for all 40 days of Lent. And we don't have that online, but there's a copy of it, a sample of it. Many of you already went through it. If you didn't or if you want to do it again, there's a sample of it out at the Welcome Center. You can look at that. And if you want us to print you a copy of that, you can sign up for that. They'll be available next week. We just charge for the cost of the copies themselves, um, just the cost of reproduction. So one way we would encourage you is to take advantage of committing to make some time to read, do some devotional reading that prepares your heart to Easter. Maybe add it to your regular Bible reading if you already do that. Make some more space. Secondly, is the whole subject of fasting. Uh, we've got two quick resources that we linked to in our newsletter, and we've got copies of them available for you this morning, paper copies, at the Welcome Center. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, I keep saying the Welcome Center. I think there's a table set up in the atrium that's got all this stuff on it, um, just as you leave the Worship Center here this morning. Two quick resources. They're kind of short, like blog post, short article type things. One of them is on why we even fast. Um, American evangelicals are not good at fasting. Let's just own that. We like food. We're good with it. <laughs> um, why Christians even fast? What's the point of that? Some very good, helpful thoughts on that. And then the second one is kind of some tips on fasting from, for, for beginners, for people that maybe have fasted a little bit here and there but never done it before, including some things you could fast from that aren't food. So if you're kind of thinking, I don't even know what fasting is, there's a couple of resources to get you started. Lent is a great time to say, for 40 days, I'm gonna give something up to make space to spend more time thinking about the beauty of Christ. So just some encouragements as we come into the Lent season this year as a church. It's going to parallel the heart of Philippians, and it's this prayer of the Apostle Paul, and and I want to pray it for us right now. I want to ask the worship team to come back up, and and I want to encourage you to stay for the next few minutes as we end our worship service in song, because as we sing, it's a response congregationally to God. And that is so important to do. It gives us a chance to sing the truths and express our hearts. So I'm going to pray the prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed 2,000 years ago for the Philippian church. I'm gonna pray that for us. And then I wanna encourage us as the music starts to sing that as our own prayer, that God would reveal himself to us more clearly, help us see him as more beautiful, and respond in love with greater lives of service that Jesus might be made known because of the people in this church. Father, we thank you for the truths of scripture. For these large, over-the-top sounding realities that we can see you more clearly and know you better and therefore respond more deeply to your beauty. Father, I want to pray specifically for those of us in this room, either who are carrying great burdens, who are worn out, who are in deep pain because of the realities of life. 
Christians who may be almost jaded, may be discouraged that I will never feel hope and joy in Christ again. Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself to every man and woman in that place right now so that joy that that passes understanding would be an experiential reality for them, not just a theological point. And Father, maybe for those of us that are here this morning, and all this language of of loving you and seeing you as most glorious is new and and, and, and savoring your glory, we don't really understand what that means because we have no frame of reference for it. Father, wherever we're at, it is my prayer that our love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we at Harvest Community Church would approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of our holy God. Amen.